Well, if you would, turn your Bibles to John chapter 10. It's a joy to be with you this morning. I hope you were able to get some sleep through the storms last night. And uh, you're here today to gather together uh, to unite in one voice to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, believe it or not, you were created to do such a thing. You were not created to worship in isolation. You were not created to worship on your own. God made you to be with people, and God made you to glorify himself. And so you add those two things together, and you could say that you were created for community, and you were created for worship in community. God made you in such a way that we enjoy belonging. Think about it. All over the history of, of, uh, of the world, and, and um, we think about the sense of belonging. We uh, see even in a lost and dying world, uh, a coming together of people in clubs, in teams, in gangs, um, people desiring relationship with other people, uh, all centered around community. Even if it's a lawlessness, it is still a unified vision, purpose, and goal of lawlessness. Well, we come together uh, transformed by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as people created to worship God and enjoy him together, we do that best as we gather together and worship him. In other words, you were not created to worship God merely alone. And so it makes sense, as the scripture communicates and teaches us this morning, that God would use an allegory or a picture in the scriptures of his people who belong to a flock. In other words, Jesus will tell us today that we who believe in him, who are a part of the church, not the church building, not the church premises, but a gathering of people who are the church, we are the sheep of his fold, or we belong to a flock of people. Isn't it interesting that God did not refer to us as a herd of elephants, a colony of ants, a hive of bees, a school of fish? It doesn't take much mental effort to figure it out that a, uh, a grouping of sheep is much uh, is different or distinct from those that I just mentioned for one main reason, is that we are dependent upon a shepherd. Schools of fish particularly do not have a leader. Herds of elephants particularly do not have someone guiding them, although there are dominant animals in those groups that might lead. But particularly in God's wisdom and his glorious purpose, he has demonstrated for us our dependence upon him by calling us sheep who need a shepherd. We need someone to guide us. We need someone to protect us. Without the shepherd, we are lost. We are free food for predators. And we are outside of our intended purpose. Sheep are created to be shepherded, unlike the majority of animals who might live free. 
And so it's a beautiful picture in Scripture written for a culture back in Jesus' day who, under, who understood the, the role and the responsibilities of shepherds and sheep. It was, it was something you would see day by day as you're walking through the countryside. You would see sheep and you would see a shepherd guiding them and leading them. But it's also not hard. It's a, it's a concept that transcends through history for us as city folk to even understand the simplicity of what a shepherd does for a sheep or a sheep, a flock of sheep. It's not hard for us to understand and see this clear image in the scriptures. And the reason we understand is not because we're familiar with sheeping or shepherding, but instead we are familiar with the word of God because the spirit helps us understand such a simple concept. What we'll actually see in John chapter 11, as Jesus is laying forth this analogy or this allegory of shepherding, is that the people around him do not even understand what he's saying. They do not get it. And so today, we want to look at the life of Christ, and we want to understand with the opened eyes of the Holy Spirit and the clear teaching of God's Word, we want to see how Jesus Christ is the great shepherd who loves his sheep like no one else can, and that is demonstrated in knowing those sheep, feeding those sheep, and giving his life for those sheep. Let me read John chapter 10. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 21. Jesus said these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all uh, of, of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay, my, lay down my life for the sheep. 
And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was, again, a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That last sentence is very important because we see the connection to what has happened contextually before this passage. The people are still remembering, although we're not given a specific time when Jesus has said this, we know this is between his time at the Feast of the Tabernacles and this, uh, uh, in our sermon next week, the Feast of the Dedication. There are a few months in between that, so we know that Jesus is there in Jerusalem teaching. But this last sentence, can a man open the eyes, or can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They are referring back to when Jesus healed the blind man. And the the purpose and the, the, the main idea for this whole section is a continuation of Jesus giving clear evidence of why he healed this blind man. He did it to demonstrate his power and his deity. He did not look upon the blind man and say, this man needs healing so that he can live a joyous life, being able to see the things around him, and then one day die and be buried in the grave and, and, and live eternally in hell for the sinfulness of his life. No, Jesus did not have pity on the blind man so he could increase his vision or transform his vision for a small amount of time. Jesus healed the blind man to show everyone his supreme glory as the Son of God. That's the point. And in that amazing, miraculous healing... We see the blind man not just receive physical sight, but literally receive and and take hold of Christ as his Savior. And of course, with such a miracle, Jesus receives such a great conflict, an an um, lashing out, excuse me, uh, from the Pharisees. And so... Partially, this section that we've read this morning is a a dividing line in the sand between Jesus and these Pharisees. Jesus is clearly demonstrating his deity, and in doing so, he is drawing the line between who is the true shepherd of the sheep and who is clearly false shepherds, or as he calls them, strangers, hired hands, thieves, and robbers which is referencing the Pharisees. He's drawing attention to the people or for the people and for these Pharisees to say, these men are not worthy to follow. I am the Son of God. Follow me. Now, the idea of shepherding, as I said, was very common 
uh, for these people. And it is a perfectly fitted illustration or, or allegory for us as believers. And it's, it's throughout the scriptures. Throughout the scriptures, we see the creator God being the shepherd of his people. Throughout the, the scriptures, we see those famous verses like Psalm 23, 1, The Lord is my shepherd. We see the, the fact that God's people in Psalm 79 are called the sheep of his pasture, who will give thanks to him forever, recounting your praise. In Ezekiel 34, we're reminded that God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. So the Old Testament is full, overflowing with references to this beautiful picture of shepherding. And of course, flowing from God being our true shepherd comes this beautiful picture of God even rising up men to lead in such a way that they are called shepherds. King David was not only physically a shepherd at one time. Moses was not physically just a shepherd. But these men were, were brought up from nothing. And they were raised up, not for their own glory, but for the glory of God. So that they could lead God's people as a picture of the overarching shepherding of God. And of course, in the same way, we see in the scriptures how God's Leaders and God's people who are called to be the shepherds of his people. These under shepherds or oftentimes wicked shepherds. They were poor shepherds. At one condemnation of God in Ezekiel chapter 34. He condemns the leaders of Israel. And he says, you shepherds, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have, <clears throat> excuse me, you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, with force and harshness you have ruled them. And so even referring to these leaders as poor shepherds who are merely seeking their own benefit and their own satisfaction and their own glory instead of caring for the sheep that do not belong to them, that belong to God. Brothers and sisters, if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you are the sheep of his fold and you belong to him. He is your shepherd. We gather together in a local assembly in this church building merely led by under-shepherds. We are not your shepherds. We are your under-shepherds. We merely seek the leadership and the guidance from God's word who is the great shepherd over his sheep. You not belong to us. You belong to him. And so our desire this morning, our desire this morning is to see the Lord Jesus. To see him 
as the true promised Son of God who came down into this world and gave his life as a good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. There's four things we want to look at today. Number one, that as the good shepherd or the great shepherd of the sheep, he has intimacy with them. He has intimacy with them. If you'll look down in John chapter 10, this is actually connected to our chapter uh, or our sermon for next week. But in John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus revisits this idea and he says uh, profound words. John chapter 10, verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and no one snatches them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In the intimacy that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ when we follow and believe in him, we must understand that we as his sheep are a gift to the Son from the Father. Before the foundation of the world, God determined to give the Son a people for himself and for his own glory. These are the sheep. Today we call that the church. And again, it's not people who come to church, it's people who belong to the church. It's not people who walk through the door of our building, it's the people who walk through the door who is Jesus. He is the door, as we'll see. And this fixed, predetermined amount of people from every tribe and tongue and nation on the earth, God chose before the foundation of the world who would belong to him. Not based upon their condition, not based upon their merit, based upon his grace and his love. And so as a believer in Jesus, you experience an intimacy with Jesus that is rooted in eternity. In other words, you were a sheep before you ever understood that concept. Because God has gifted not the concept of sheep, but individually named sheep to the Son. Revelation says it another way. You belong to the Son the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because your name was written, not will be written, not is written, was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Now, it is hard for us to wrap our minds around that truth. But as we submit to the words of Scripture, we see that God has given the sheep The Father has given those to the Son. They are preserved. They are kept. No one can remove them from the Father's protection, from the Father's security. We are one with Christ, and we will continually be one with Christ, not by our power, but by His grace and power and love. 
So then, back in John chapter 10, verse 1, he says, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens it, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his, excuse me, he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. So that intimacy begins with a gift from the Father to the Son. But in verse 3, we see that the sheep hear his voice, and he calls each one by name, and he leads them out. This is not the, the shepherd saying, hey sheep, come on. Hey sheep, follow me. But instead, the, the intimacy and the love and the care of that shepherd as that sheep comes into the world to give that sheep a name. Fluffy, honey, Q-tip. Calling these sheep individually by name reminds us of the intimacy that we have with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Before the foundation of the world, the Father sheds His grace and His love upon us by calling us at one point in our lives out of darkness into marvelous light. And it's the Son, the Son who calls us as the shepherd by name to come to Him. He calls us, He draws us out He doesn't say, hey, people, come to me. He calls us by name. We don't don't come to Jesus in mass. We come to Jesus individually. And he calls us by name, and he says our name because he knows our name because we have an intimate relationship with him. And that intimate relationship is not something that you applied for in some government office. And they looked over your resume and they said, congratulations, you are now qualified to have an intimate relationship with the shepherd. No, it's by his grace. No qualifications needed. And so Jesus reminds us the intimacy that we hear his voice and he calls us by name and he leads us out. Tied with us, uh, tied with the intimacy of him knowing our name, is that we hear his voice. We understand that is the voice of our shepherd, and we follow him. We, in, in, in a miraculous way, we proceed out in following in, in such a direction that in our own power and strength, we would never go that direction on our own. We would never seek after God, Romans says. We don't understand God, Romans chapter 3 tells us. No one seeks after God. No one wants Him. And yet when He becomes our shepherd, when He draws us and, 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 and brings us to Himself and transforms us, all of a sudden we are traveling and following in a direction that we would never do on our own. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. One commentator who has gone to the Middle East and and areas in in Eastern Europe and observed shepherds says this. 
He says, on the boundless eastern pasture, the shepherd is indispensable. With us, sheep are often left to themselves. He says, I do not remember to have seen in the east a flock without a shepherd. Sometimes we would enjoy our noonday rest next to Judean wells, to which three or four shepherds come down with their flocks. The flocks mixed together. And we wondered how each shepherd would get his own sheep again. But after the watering and the playing were over, the shepherds one by one went up different sides of the valley and each called out his particular call and the sheep of each drew out of the crowd to their own shepherd and the flocks passed as orderly as they came. It is such a clear an undeniable definition that Jesus has stated for us. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And an indistinguishable mark of a Christian is that we hear the voice of God given to us through his word. We hear that calling of God to salvation and we follow He is our shepherd. We belong to him. And so we will follow him. Now we all agree and understand that that we do not obey our shepherd perfectly. And praise be to God, we have a gracious shepherd who is willing to to leave the the front as the leader and, and, and hook us around back into the fold. This concept of shepherding is not typically what we would see if we went out west where a a shepherd may lead from behind with a sheepdog. But instead, these Middle Eastern and Eastern shepherds would always lead ahead and the sheep would follow. And so they hear his his voice and they follow him. Verse 4, he has brought out all his own. He goes before them, and the sheep follow them, follow him, for they know his voice. You know, we wonder sometimes in, in the lives of our friends and our family, we see people who may profess that they love the Lord Jesus Christ, but they clearly do not do what he says. We should not wonder at those things when we clearly understand that true believers of the Lord Jesus Christ will follow him. True believers of the Lord Jesus Christ know him, they follow him, and I could even add that they delight in him. They find joy and satisfaction because in his presence are pleasures forevermore. So the intimacy of our shepherd is is that he has called us out. He he knows our name. We hear his voice and we follow him. But lastly, verse 16 of chapter 10, Jesus says something remarkable. He says, and I have other sheep 
that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is clearly a reference to the future. And yet connected to the past. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I have other sheep, meaning determined that they are my sheep in the past, and yet yet they are not of this fold in the present and the future. So I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Folks, this is the church. This is the, the bringing together of both Jews and Gentiles. Two groups of people who humanistically were in conflict with one another. Selfishly were warring against one another. And yet people who were transformed by the shepherd's call and the change of a heart. So that they said we can now love one another because we have been given salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And so that... That flock of people that we call the church is from every tongue and tribe and nation. People that speak different languages, understand different cultures, live distinctly across the globe, and yet they hear the same voice of God that calls us to the same gospel about the same Lord Jesus Christ who offers the same forgiveness for sins through his one death, burial, and resurrection. So as you travel, as you go across the world, you will find people that may have grown up and lived distinctly different from you, and yet they have experienced the same thing you have experienced in the Lord Jesus. And they now belong to you, and you belong to them because you all belong to the great shepherd. And just notice the contrast sprinkled through this passage. Remember that the, the context of this passage is Jesus clearly saying, <clears throat> I am the true shepherd. That's his main point. This statement of his deity, this statement of his rule and his sovereignty. This statement of what and who belong to him. And the contrast are the Pharisees, the ones who are called thieves and robbers and hired hands. Verse 1 tells us that they are more interested in deception and not truth. They climb in another way. They don't enter the door. They climb in. Well, in this culture, the shepherds would build pens, and those pens would be circular or, or enclosed rock walls, and, and there was one access point, one entry point, and that would be a door that they would make. And along those walls, they would build and affix briars upon the tops of those walls to defend against prey. And just imagine that these, these Pharisees are being called thieves and robbers who literally climb over with pain and great effort to try to deceive and to destroy and to kill. These are condemning words by the Lord Jesus. 
He doesn't just say, these guys don't know what they're talking about. He's saying, if you follow them, you will be destroyed. And so they all are about deception and not truth. Instead of love, they bring fear. Verse 5 says that the sheep don't hear their voice. They don't listen to them. They scatter because there are strangers in the pen. And then ultimately, he says that they are willing to abandon the sheep. That they are willing to run as what he calls hired hands. Hired hands are distinctly different from shepherds. And we'll get to that in just a minute. So, we see Jesus as the great shepherd has a spiritual intimacy with his sheep. But number two, he makes provision for his sheep. He makes provision for his sheep. In John chapter 10, verses 9 and verse 11, Jesus makes two additional I am statements. Again, the I am statements are statements that Jesus is making, connecting back to the Old Testament, declaring his deity. In the Greek, they are the ego, I, me. They are statements declaring that he is the Yahweh God of the Old Testament who is now bearing the flesh of man, living upon the earth. When Moses encounters God in the burning bush, God says that his name is I am. This statement is merely saying, I am uh, the God of the universe. That's who I am. And these seven I am statements throughout John, two of them are found here in, our, in this one passage. Verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door, and then he repeats that. And then later on, he says, I am the good shepherd, and he once again repeats that. Now, his statement of being the door is not the primary focus of this passage, but it's helpful. It's important. It's important because Jesus is making a similar statement to when he will want in the future in John chapter 14 say, I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In other words, it is an absolute claim that salvation is through Christ alone. Hence, the door is the only access point to the sheep pen. Salvation can only come through the Lord Jesus. It also means that salvation cannot come through other means, just as these robbers were trying to climb the fence or climb the wall and enter into the sheepfold. Salvation cannot come through the obedience to the law like many of the Pharisees believed. These men were dependent upon their self-righteousness and that was a legalistic way of believing in the strength of man and not the power of a savior. This is why it's so important for Jesus to call these men hired hands. Hired hands are day laborers. 
You can drive down Summer Avenue early in the morning and you'll see a large group of hired hands that are willing to tackle any task that you may have for them during the day. You want to lay concrete? You need your yard mowed? These men are just willing to work and earn a living. They are committed to the task that you may give them, but they may not be faithful employees. They're merely merely working for you for the day so that whatever they earn, they will receive their wage. I think it's so important to think about this concept of these Pharisees being hired hands because hired hands in the spiritual life are people who expect good things to come to them because they have done good things for God. I deserve some spiritual blessing from God, such as salvation, because I have done good things for Him in His name. That's hired hand theology. The question is, that I may ask you this morning is, how much good hired hand work can you do to make it in the presence of a holy God? See, hired hand theology works upon a balanced, counterbalance system. Just like Muslims and other religions of the world. The belief there would be that you must do more good things than bad things to please God and gain salvation from Him. Well, that may logically make sense, except for the fact of, one, you never know what your balance is. You never know what amount of good things you have done in comparison to the sinful things. There is no receipt or counter on your body that says, oh, you're at 51%, you're good. How would you know that your good outweighs your bad? And number two, and the most important, is that the Bible says that all that we do before God is not good. That our righteousness or our, our, our attempts to be righteous before God are filthy, dirty rags before a holy God. They're unacceptable. Because we are rebels, we are His enemies. We possibly, oh, it is impossible for us to do enough good things to even accumulate one good credit before a holy God. But Jesus does not just call these men hired hands. He calls them thieves and robbers, trying to find a different way. Trying to find another path or or alternative route to eternal security. Jesus demands a high cost for following him. He says that you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Many of the disciples of Jesus heard these words, and they were so hard for them to hear that they left Jesus, could no longer follow him. And so like the Pharisees, people have attempted to find some alternative route to salvation. Let's consider just a few. Number one, universalism. 
Universalism is the idea that all people go to heaven. Some who are called Christian universalists believe that all people will go to heaven because Jesus' sacrifice was for the whole world. Their argument is that God's love is so great and it is demonstrated in the sacrifice of Jesus that all peoples across the world, regardless of their belief in God, regardless of even their knowledge of God, will be forgiven and will attain a place in heaven because God's love is so amazing. Listen, I want to believe that. I want to believe that my flesh and my desire is for me to say, Lord, I wish that that was true. Because I I cannot conceive of a place and, and, and the, I, I, I believe in hell and I believe in the punishment of sin, but I cannot even imagine in my own brain, besides what Scripture describes for us, the suffering that goes on there. But I believe it's there. I believe that it's real because the Lord Jesus Christ is perfect in all ways and He teaches that there is punishment for sin. And so the alternative that has been created is that, listen, everyone goes to heaven. Everyone believes, or everyone doesn't have to believe, and yet will still be able to be included. But this is a misrepresentation and an an ignoring of Scripture. Ignoring the passages where God says that He can by no means clear the guilty. Passages that we're all familiar with that people put on signs at football games. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Again in verse 18 Whoever believes is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Of course, the emphasis is on who believe. Believing in Christ, not knowing Christ, not not accepting the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth, but trusting, surrendering, acknowledging what is already true, that he is Lord and King of all. Another alternative route, quickly, is law-keeping. The Pharisees were, as I said earlier, good at this. Just as many of us would say that we are good at this. I'm a good person. I'm going to get to heaven because I'm a good person. But as I said before, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We miss the mark. The mark in Matthew 5.48 says, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You and I will never be perfect. So we miss the mark of the glory of God. Sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. And so we thus miss the mark. So no matter how much we obey or how many good things we do, we will always miss the mark. That is why we need Jesus because He is the law keeper. 
He lived the perfect life for us. And so these Pharisees lived trying to be righteous people, trying to obey and, and, and thinking that that obedience would please God. And, and even in John chapter 5, he tells the Pharisees, you search the scripture because in them you think you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you have life. You can strive throughout your life to please God with good works, only to be disappointed in the end and hear the words that are spoken in the Gospels. Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not perform miracles in your name? And Jesus will say to you, away from me, I never knew you. You were not a part of my sheep because you did not trust in me. You did not trust in your shepherd. You did not surrender to my leadership and my authority. You tried to find another way. And so the, the, the beauty of this passage rests in chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. Jesus says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. How can we find salvation through Jesus? Why is he the only way, the only access point into eternity of heaven, of peace, of forgiveness? Because he laid down his life for the sheep. That's what he says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I love how mind-boggling scripture is to our finite minds. Because it just puts us in place of reminding us that we are reading and digesting and trying to understand the revelation of an infinite God with finite minds. And think about this for a minute. Jesus is not only the door by which the shepherd enters, but he is the shepherd that enters that door. Both teaching two distinct and important truths about his sacrifice as the shepherd. It's the same as him being called the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world and yet also the high priest who offers that sacrifice upon the altar. He is both the door of the sheepfold and the shepherd. He is both the lamb that offers himself and the high priest who offers the lamb. And only he can do such things because he is no mere man. He is God in the flesh. And so how are we saved through Jesus? Because he lays down his life. He is what is called a substitute who stands in our place. This great, deep, theological, religious word that we should all uh, input into our vocabulary is penal substitution. Penal coming from the, the idea of a penalty that we've incurred. A penalty that deserves a consequence. That penalty is our rebellion against God. Our sinful natures are at odds with God throughout a lifetime. We are incapable of doing any good, and thus we deserve punishment for sin. 
And so the shepherd comes and he stands in the place of those sinners. He is the substitute. We are liable to God for our rebellion, and yet he says, I will take that punishment on myself. Listen to Nahum chapter 1. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So you come to this conundrum in your life. You, you rather lie to yourself and say, well, I'm not guilty. First John says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So instead, we have to admit that we are guilty. And by this passage in Nahum, which is sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, the same word is, the same phrase is continually, the Lord is slow to anger. He is great in his power, his steadfast love, and yet the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He can't. Because as we swim in the ocean of God's love and grace, we are swimming in the same ocean of his justice and his wrath. And so Jesus is taking on himself as the substitute the punishment for our sin so that God in his justice must punish sin and thus he chooses to lay it upon his son on our behalf. Folks, that is true love. That is true grace. Not that we escape the wrath of God, but that we have a substitute who did not escape it. And he did it because of us. Because he was sinless. He died as a criminal. He faced the wrath of God from his father. And yet sin was not found in him. Deceit was not found in him. Rebellion was not found in him. But he dies in our place. And can I just say that he dies in our place for his glory. He dies in our place for his glory. When Jesus died on the cross, I don't believe the song that, that is sung, that when he died on the cross, he was thinking of you. He wasn't thinking of you. He was thinking of his Father, whom he was glorifying by obediently fulfilling the plan as the sacrificial son for sinners. And so, undeservingly, we have a substitute who's willing to die in our place and take the wrath of God so we can experience a freedom of guiltiness, a freedom of shame. We have a, a, an abundance. John chapter 10, verse 9. Anyone who enters by me will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Imagine what it's like in the morning for a sheep to burst forth from the sheep pen and just in front of them is these luscious pastures, a place where they will, will find food, a place where they will find rest, a, face, a place where they will find freedom, all under the watchful eye and care of their shepherd. 
so we are reminded that the Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our lives. No, He restores our souls. He leads us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And so, because of the substitute of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of His sacrificial death, we experience not an abundance, not a, uh, an eternity of, of salvation that we deserve, and yet it is freely offered to us. But before we go any farther, see number three. Not only does He have intimacy with us, not only does He sacrifice for us or make provision for us, but he conquers our enemies. See, I don't want to leave Jesus in the grave this morning because he's not in the grave, he's alive. He rose from the dead. And Jesus, in predicting and and promoting his purpose and mission to die on the cross, he doesn't leave himself in the grave. Verse 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus didn't go into this mission of the earth and this plan on the earth going, man, I hope this thing works out. I hope I'm able to rise from the dead. Jesus says that it was the charge of his Father to have the authority to both sacrifice his life willingly and raise himself from the dead. Both of those are true. Jesus willingly gave his life, and Jesus willingly, by the power of the eternal Son of God, is able to raise himself from the dead. I mean, this verses 10 through, um, chapter 10, 11 through 15, it just reeks of God's sovereignty over all things, that he can give his life, that he can lay his life down. And then in comparison, the fearful and the scared hired hands who are fleeing for their own self-protection. Jesus wasn't interested in self-protection. Jesus was interested in self-sacrifice. And so your shepherd gave his life and rose from the grave to provide victory, victory for all who believe. Victory for all who believed. Jesus risked his life. He didn't run from the adversary of sin. He was tempted, but he never indulged, and he won the victory over sin. He wasn't afraid of the cross. He walked to Mount Calvary, bearing the cross on his back as a symbol of his courage in which he would defeat death. It was a burden, but it didn't destroy him. And in the, and in the, the last and the final battle, he, fate, he faced Satan face to face in numerous battles in the temptation in the wilderness, in the exorcism of a legion of demons, even among his own disciples, Jesus prevailed over sin, death, and Satan in every way. He's victorious. He's not a scared hired hand. He runs into battle. And as the scripture says, he, the Lord, is the warrior. And so from the resurrection from the dead, 
We as believers, we as followers of Jesus Christ have victory over those things. We have victory over the sins that we face. We have a freedom from those sins. God grants us daily victories as we struggle in this world. But a final victory over sin, no longer guilty, no longer unforgiven, no longer shameful. We are free. Listen, your death is most likely a guarantee unless the Lord returns. And yet Jesus has gained victory over your your death so that even when you die, you will live forever in his presence. And Satan and his demons can do everything in their power to attack you in this world. Have no fear because in Christ you have his armor to withstand the attacks of the evil one. You have give, you've been given salvation, faith, righteousness, the spirit, God's word, the gospel of peace, and prayer. You have all the tools necessary to fight these battles. And you have those things because Jesus Christ didn't stay in the grave. He rose victoriously. But I don't want to just leave it there. This is where our text leaves us today, but I'm going to take it one step further. I'm going to ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 7. As this imagery of the shepherd continues, we fast forward to the gathering of the church around the Lord Jesus. We see the victory that he has gained for his church the substitute that he made, the resurrection that he experienced, the victory that that brings. And lastly, when he returns, this shepherd, this great shepherd, is restoring all things for his glory. Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where do they come? And, and I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them in His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor, either, or, 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 nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Don't you long for that day? Don't you long for the day that racism, racism does not divide us? 
that cancer ceases from killing us, that jealousy is eliminated from within us, that tragedy no longer steals our joy, that hate no longer steals our identity, and that worship is only directed at the one whom for we were created to worship, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus offers you an invitation this morning to become one of his sheep. The door is there. It's always been the only way into eternity. An eternity of salvation and not condemnation. An eternity of forgiveness and grace, not wrath and justice. Would you this morning believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you hear his voice and surrender your life to him today? If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you understand and know this morning that your identity is found not in the things of this world, but in the one who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light? Would you trust in his guidance and his wisdom that is found in, your wor- in his word? And when you follow him in obedience and faithfulness as sheep, because you must acknowledge that as these sheep, you cannot guide yourself. You don't have the wisdom. You don't have the strength. When you fall and the the sores on your wounds are weeping and painful, the Lord Jesus Christ is the balm by which you can be healed. When you go through the sufferings in this world, suffering in your family, suffering in your body, suffering throughout this society, and you, you want to find resolve and you want to find hope and you want to find healing, you're not going to find them in temporary things of this world, but you can find them in the Lord Jesus. Healing for your soul. A reconnection with God, the one for whom you were created to worship adore, and praise. So find rest in your shepherd. And if you have never surrendered to him today, my prayer this morning is that today he would become your shepherd. Let's pray.